Well, good morning. Good morning. Anybody else feel a little wrung out by worship? Like, man, the Spirit was moving this morning. In fact, I don't have some clever intro. I'm not going to have you show your hands. Like, that was the setup. That was the intro. Uh, we're going to dive right into our message today. We're concluding our series, God Is, where we've been spending the last eight weeks leading up to this, focusing on the character and nature of God, who He is, what He does, how we can expect Him to act in various circumstances. And today we're concluding this series with God Is, the King of Kings. And what a wonderful time of worship that we had focusing on His Lordship, His Kingship over all creation. He is the king of kings. You see, every kingdom has to have a king. <laughs> and so that's why we've been talking about it. You know, if you've been with us for some time, you know that this year we've been focusing on the kingdom. Every series up until now had kingdom in the title, and we'll get back on that track next week. But in reality, this series was all about the king. It's all about the king of kings. We've been talking about who God is, Every kingdom has a king, and he is the king. The king of the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ himself. And because the kingdom of God is over every kingdom that this earth has ever had or will ever have, Jesus is the king over every king who has ever been or will ever be. And it's an interesting title. I knew I wanted to do this message, and when I went to actually prepare it, I was a little surprised to see that the title King of Kings occurs exactly two times in Scripture, and they're both at the, in the book of Revelation, towards the end of Revelation. And yet this phrase, Lord of Lords, that's married to it, does have you know, a, a, a longer uh, historical context associated with it, but that title, King of Kings, comes in Revelation 17 and Revelation 19. At the end of all things, and so if you want to start turning in your Bibles to page 1931 in the blue hardcover Bibles, if you need to use one of ours, otherwise, Revelation's clear at the back. Go to the back page and the maps and kind of get to where there's actually Scripture, and it'll be right there uh, towards the very end. And the context for the book of Revelation is that this, this, this revelation that was given to John, the Apostle John, who was one of the disciples who followed Jesus around. He's the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He actually wrote a good chunk of the New Testament because he has the Gospel, the three letters, and the book of Revelation. And this revelation came to him, and it's got all kinds of stuff. And in fact, I'm, I know I'm treading on somewhat thin ice because I remember when I went into ministry and, and started into my own church as a senior pastor uh, in West Virginia, a, a wise old pastor said, don't preach on revelation for the first five years in your new, in your new post, right? Because like everybody's got an opinion about revelation. And he said, when you do preach on revelation, in the next five years, you can only preach on the churches. Everybody can handle the churches in revelation two and three. That's stable ground. And then once you've been somewhere 10 years, you can start preaching on Revelation in the end times, and everybody wants to know what's going to happen in the end times. Um, so I'm not going to get into all that. We're going to focus on this, this title, King of Kings, because it comes at the beginning and end of this great final battle, and that's the subject of Revelation 17, 18, and 19. It's this great battle that's taking place between Jesus and all the armies of heaven, and Babylon, 
or the great prostitute it's referred to several times, everything that is evil, everything that is bad, everything that sets itself up in rebellion against God. It's this final showdown that's taking place in Revelation 17, 18, and 19. So Revelation 17 sets the stage for this battle between good and evil. Revelation 18 tells us that Babylon falls. That lawlessness and rebellion comes to an end. That there is a celebration in chapter 19. There's rejoicing. There's four hallelujah statements. It's the only time you see hallelujah in the New Testament. It's this Hebrew word that means praise Yahweh. And all of this is coming to this conclusion. But I want to look at this title, and I want to look at this title given to Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We find it at the beginning of this battle and at the end of this battle. So where we're going to focus most of our attention is on chapter 17, verse 14. So if you want to look at that, if you want to underline that, if you want to make some notes, it's okay. You can write in your Bibles. It's fine. You can even write in one of our Bibles and take a picture of it if you need to. Like, be engaged in this because there's some really cool things in this verse. We're really going to focus on one verse today, Revelation 17, verse 14. Where we're told as this battle is being set up, as the stage is being set, they, the forces of evil and darkness and all that is opposing God, they will make war against the Lamb. That's Jesus. But the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful Followers, Nobody amen to that passage in the first service either blew me away. Like, that's good news, right? You come to church for some good news, that's good news. We know how the story ends. We don't have to freak out because of the halftime score. We don't have to freak out because they're down two touchdowns with three minutes to go. We know how the story ends. We've been told. And in this one verse, we see a prediction. We see an explanation, and we see a promise. And that's what I want to focus on today. The prediction, the explanation, and the promise that is contained right here in Revelation 17, 14. The prediction is that the Lamb will overcome. Now, this was written over 2,000 years ago. And it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. And Jesus even said in His earthly ministry, I have overcome the world. So it is past, present, and future. This is what Jesus does. He overcomes. He overcame sin and death on the cross. He is overcoming in the lives of his faithful followers who overcome sin and who overcome depression, who overcome all kinds of challenges that this world throws at us. And he will overcome once and for all at the end of all things. Now that word overcome is a key word in the book of Revelation. It actually occurs 15 times in the book of Revelation. And six times in the letter of 1 John. You see, it was a, it was a, it was a word that John really liked. <laughs> it was a word that means victory. In fact, if you look up the Greek for this word, the, the verb form is nikeo. And the noun form is nike. Which is interesting to me because I didn't know this until today. That, that word means victory. It means to be victorious. It means to conquer or to prevail. Its usage here means to carry off the victory, to come off victorious. So when it says the lamb will overcome, it's saying the lamb is going to run away with it. The lamb will overcome. The lamb will be victorious. Christ will be victorious over all his foes. No one and nothing can stand against him. And then I went down on this little rabbit trail because I was pretty sure I had seen somewhere that the Nike symbol 
Everybody knows the Nike symbol. I see one on a shirt down here. How many people are wearing Nikes today? Just throw a hand in the air. Handful of Nikes. Yeah, you can wear Nikes to Linwood. That's fine. You don't have to wear loafers. But this is one of the most recognizable symbols in the whole world. It's on everybody's top ten list. It's one of the most recognizable logos. And you don't even need the Nike written over it or under it to know that that represents Nike. And I just had to smile <laughs> that God has plastered a reminder that we win all over the world. It's in every single country. Everywhere you go, I've been to China, I've been to Hong Kong, I've been to Peru, I've been to Nicaragua, I've been to Canada and Mexico. I've seen Nike everywhere. And it occurs to me that this could be a reminder every time I see it that we win, that God wins, that He will overcome, that He is victorious. But as I was researching this, I noticed another symbol that is on everybody's top ten list, another logo that's a piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it. Does that remind you of anything in Scripture? Genesis 3. In the first three chapters, you have a piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it, and the fall, and everything that follows it. And then in the last six chapters, you have twice this word Nike. In the last book of the Bible, you have 15 times some form of the word Nike. God's saying, we win. I will overcome. I will overcome the fall. I will put everything back to rights. And I've talked about prayer triggers before. It's been a while. Prayer trigger is anything that reminds you to pray. You should have a lot of prayer triggers. Like I used to get irritated at red lights. I don't know what I was thinking, expecting to get all the way home without a red light. And then I'd be all frustrated because I was running behind, because I'd planned too much, overscheduled, whatever. And red lights were a source of aggravation. I turned them into a prayer trigger. So when I start to get aggravated at a red light, it's a reminder to pray. I've got 15 seconds. I've got 30 seconds. If I'm at Western and 57th, I've got a minute and a half maybe to pray, <laughs> right? So what if every time you see that piece of fruit, maybe you keep one in your pocket. I got apples everywhere. I'm an apple guy. Save it if you're an Android person, robots. What does that mean? <laughs> There's no spiritual significance whatsoever. Another plug for apple. Sorry, I digress. What if every piece was a reminder that this world has fallen and every Nike swoosh was a reminder and a prayer trigger to celebrate the victory that is coming? That is the prediction. That though all evil will make war against the Lamb, the Lamb will overcome. In fact, in John's gospel, another significant overcome. John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, he's telling them what's going to happen. He's explaining it all to them. He says, I've told you these things now so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. He promised it. Another prediction. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He has overcome. He is overcoming. He will overcome. So that's the prediction. The explanation is why the prediction will take place. You see it in the next phrase there. The Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. This title gives Him supreme power and authority. 
Now, Lord of Lords has a rich Old Testament heritage, as I mentioned earlier. We see it as early as Deuteronomy. There's this phrase, God of gods, Lord of Lords, ascribed to Yahweh. We see it in the Psalms as praise is given to the Lord of Lords. We see it in the book of Daniel as revelations are coming to Daniel about the end times as well. Then in the New Testament, we see this ascribed to God in 1 Timothy chapter 6, a Ascribing this to Jesus, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus basically said the same thing before he ascended into heaven. As he was giving that great commission to the disciples before he told them to go, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. It's been given to me. I'm going to empower you with it. The song we just sang, the fullness song, was about the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God fell upon the people of God and they prophesied in His name in languages they had never spoken before. It was this outpouring of His Spirit. And He's saying, go. All authority has been given to me. I'm going to give you all the authority that you need to go and do what you've been called to do. In fact, Daniel 7.14 came to mind. It was one of the theme verses for our youth camps this past month. That He was given authority, glory, and royal power. And his dominion is a dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is a kingdom that will never pass away. That's who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. That's why he overcomes, because he is king of kings, and he is lord of lords. And that that title king is significant, and we have to remember this. Some of us really need to realize this and fully grasp this for the first time. He is a king. He is not a politician that you can elect and then change your mind and bad mouth and trash like we have a habit of doing here in America. He's the king of kings. He is not a politician that we elect. He's not some power-hungry monarch. In fact, in this series, we've talked about him being the good father and the good shepherd. He's not some spoiled aristocrat who just inherited his throne or his title. No, in fact, he's the opposite. He's the suffering servant who laid down his life for his followers. He is the king, the king over all other kings forever. And he will be the only king standing at the end. And not only that, he's the best king ever. Like when you read your Old Testament, and you should read your Old Testament, you're going to see in the book of Kings, in the book of Chronicles, you're going to see there was a good king, and then there were three or four bad kings. And then there was a good king, and then there were three or four bad kings. And even the good kings had their faults and their issues at times. This is not that type of king. This is the best king ever. This is the perfect king. Perfectly wise. Perfectly faithful. Perfectly good and benevolent in every possible way. So that's the explanation. Here's the promise. The promise is the final phrase of verse 14. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. That's us. That's those of us who have responded in faith to the call and the election of God in our lives. His part is to call us. His part is to elect us, to choose us. Our response is faith in Jesus. Our response is faithfulness to Jesus. And the promise is that we will overcome with him. And so this is where it gets heavy because you have to decide. You have to decide. Everybody has to make a decision. Which side do you want to be standing on in Revelation 19? Do you want to be overcoming and victorious with the King of kings and Lord of lords? Or do you want to fall 
with Babylon, with sin, with rebellion, with having it your own way. There are only two options. There is no third option. Everyone has to decide, and not deciding is a decision. And so our bottom line is this. To be a Christian is to swear allegiance to a king. To be a Christian is to swear allegiance to a king, and not just any king, the king of kings. To be a Christian is to swear allegiance to the king of kings. Now, I love my country. (laughs) I think it's the best country on earth, personally. I could debate that with anybody. Yes, it has its faults. I try to be a good citizen. I try to vote. I try to follow the processes. I try to obey the laws to the very best of my ability. But bottom line, I've sworn allegiance to a king. And his name is Jesus. And if one comes in conflict with the other, I'm sticking with Jesus. And this is an important word for us as believers. Because the time may be coming where there is great conflict. And we have to know who we're going to stand with. And we have to know that he will overcome. He's promised. I've sworn allegiance to a king and I am subject to him. My ultimate allegiance is to him. You could say he is on the throne of my life. And I used to chase him off of there every now and then. (laughs) Anybody? I used to want to be on the throne of my life. I don't anymore. When I realize that I've nudged him off, I don't want anything to do with it. I look back at the decisions I made and some of the things that I did when I was on the throne of my life, and I don't want any part of that. I want him on the throne. I was reflecting on this. One of the Proverbs had to do with don't envy sinful people in my Banding Together journal this week, and I realized I used to envy sinful people. I used to think that I was missing out on all the good stuff because I was trying to be a good person when I was on the throne of my life. I don't want to be on the throne of my life anymore. I'm not. And I don't want a political party on the throne of my life. And let me tell you, some Christians, it's easier to spot their political affiliation than who's Lord over their life. Nobody in this room, right? Maybe. It's not a political party that's on the throne of my life or a political leader. It's Jesus Christ himself. It's not some philosophy. It's not even religion to do more, try harder, hope I did enough. It's Jesus And I've sworn allegiance to him. He's the king of kings. And I came across this quote from Andy Stanley. It was actually at last year's Global Leadership Summit that he said this, and I wrote it down, and it's come to mind several times. It came to mind as I was preparing this message. He says, you get to decide whether or not to follow Jesus. He's left that decision in our court, but you don't get to decide what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. It looks like love. That's his program. That's what he's here for. That's what he lived for. That's what he died for. And if we've sworn allegiance to that king and we call ourselves a follower of Jesus, that's what it looks like. Learning to live as he would if he were you and he would love. He would love every single person in your life. Sometimes that's harder than others. Sometimes that involves uncomfortable conversations to be loving and to be truthful but it would look like Jesus and we should look at the Gospels and we should see how he lived and how he handled certain situations and if he's on the throne of our lives, then that's our goal and that's how we're going to live as well. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what was the new commandment he gave us? Love 
one another. As I have loved you, just hours before the cross, so you should love one another. And so the question is, does your life look like Jesus is your king, or does it look like something else or someone else is on the throne? Some of the time, much of the time, all the time. Because that question matters a lot. It determines where we're standing in Revelation 19. Are we standing with Jesus, our conquering king? Or are we standing with Babylon and those that have fallen? You see, as we bring this series to a close, God is a lot of things, isn't he? He's a lot of things. Like, we started this, he's alive. That's an important place to start. He's alive, he's existing, he's eternal. That's what the name Yahweh means, I am. Forever in the past, forever in the future. He's alive. He's jealous for you. He's aware of your struggles. He's a good father who's watching and waiting even for the wayward, embarrassing son to return. He's worth waiting on as well, even when he doesn't move the way we think he's going to move. He's worth serving and following in the meantime. He's just and the justifier. He's the good shepherd. These are all characteristics of his divine nature as revealed to us in Scripture, as revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. They tell us who he is. They tell us how he acts. They tell us what we can expect from him. But this is, honestly, we've left a lot on the table. This could easily be a 20 or 30 or 40 week series. We could do a whole year on God is and just be scratching the surface because he is indescribable. He's incredible. And as the worship team comes up to close out our time, I'm reminded that the second or third week, I think it was the third week of this series, is that God is so much more. He's so much more than we can imagine or even hope to imagine. Whatever you need, he is that. He can be that. That's his goal. That's his hope. That's his purpose is that he would be so much more to us, that he would be a friend, that he would be powerful, that he would be loving, merciful, ready to forgive, incredible, able to act, all the things that you see on that image. But most importantly, I'm going to add one more before we close. He's here. He's here in this room. He's here with you watching online. He's here. And he wants to meet with you. He wants to engage with you. He wants to interact with you. He wants your heart. He makes no apologies for that. He knows that the best place you can put your heart is in his hands. He knows that. He wants to be on the throne of your life because he knows that's what's best for you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to heal you. He wants to save you. And so as we close this series, as we close this service, we're going to offer anointing. We've done this before. You can be anointed for any reason that fits with Scripture, obviously. I mean, like, there's certain things I would say, no, you can't be anointed for that. But you can be anointed to be healed. You can be anointed to be saved. You can be anointed for forgiveness. You can be anointed because God has laid a ministry or a vision or a mission on your heart and you need the courage to step into it. You, you want to be more obedient. Whatever it is, you can be anointed for somebody else. You can be anointed and come and stand in place of someone else. So in a moment when they start playing the music and start singing the song, you're going to have an opportunity to come forward and be anointed or go to the back and be anointed. Pastor Aaron will be over here in front of the drums. I'm going to be over here in front of this cross. 
Pastor Ryan will be back by these doors. Pastor Sandy will be over by these doors. You can go to whichever one. If you don't want to come down, you can go back. If you see somebody going, nothing's wrong with them. Something's right with them. Don't let anything keep you in your seat. And if you feel God moving you to go and be anointed, you'll be anointed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and someone will pray with you. And if you're an elder or you're a member of a prayer team, you're a member of a local board of administration, you want to come and you want to put hands and join in that prayer, Scripture gives us a really clear basis that when we do that, things change. Chains get broken. Healing comes. And so this moment is available for you to respond in faith. Whatever you choose to do, I just hope you don't do nothing. Do something. Make an altar where you're seated. Come down. Come to the back. These moments are for us to respond to be anointed in Jesus' name. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are King of kings, that you are Lord of lords, that you are good, that you long to meet with us, you want to spend eternity with us. And so I pray, God, that in these moments we would move towards you. We would move towards faith. We would move towards healing. We would move towards whatever it is that you're calling us to move towards. That we would go deeper with you. That we would go higher with you. That we would go where you want us to go and do what you want us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.